0: This is R.J. Rushtuni, Easy Chair number 345, August 30th, 1995. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushtuni and I will have a somewhat different format. The men suggested that uh, I discuss some interesting and, in some instances, forgotten books, their importance and their implications. And they will ask questions and make uh, comments about the material. I'm going to start with the Russians. In the last century, one of the things that was most notable about Russian literature was its religious character. Dostoevsky's uh, novels, while they represented a kind of Russian orthodoxy, nonetheless had an intensely religious character to them. Tolstoy had a very liberal, modernistic emphasis, but it was still a religious emphasis. And he looked to the New Testament rather than the Old for his inspiration. There were a number of other writers who went even further, perhaps. One of them, now forgotten, was in the 30s when I was in school a part of the reading requirements in a course on Russian literature. It was Dmitry Merezhkovsky. M-E-R-E-J-K-O-W-S-K-I, a trilogy. Now, Marishkovsky was Russian and far from uh, our perspective, but nonetheless, he wrote three novels on Christ versus Antichrist. The first of these was to... Um, The title reads, The Death of the Gods. It was about the effort of Julian the Apostate to turn back the clock and make uh, the Roman Empire again pagan and how he failed. The second was the confusion of issues that came about with the Renaissance. Paganism under the facade of Christianity very often and it is titled The Romance of Leonardo da Vinci the third deals with the emergence of an openly anti-Christian motif in history and it is titled Peter and Alexis Peter the Great of Russia and of course while Peter's Hostility is somewhat masked. His hope is in science and in modernization as the salvation of man. Now, these three volumes were a part of the modern library when I was a university student. Now they are forgotten. They are well worth exploring as I say, you will not agree with the perspective, but Marishkovsky was a very able writer. I'd like to stop there for a moment. If there are any questions any of you have to ask about his trilogy and about Marishkovsky himself, Rush, how
1: does uh, how do his writings relate to the pervasive radicalism in
0: Russia? Uh, in late uh, yes. last century, early century, he was hostile to the radicalism, and in fact, one of his books, which I considered bringing, was titled "The Menace of the Mob." He saw the rise of uh, an emphasis on the mob, and of course, he felt that any time you create a mob. Mentality, somebody is going to manipulate the mob. So he saw the future of the 20th century as a very grim one because of the menace of the mob.
1: Was his religious orientation Russian Orthodox? Russian. Uh,
0: very intensely Russian Orthodox.
1: Well, Peter
2: was the one that pulled together all of the diverse areas uh, in Russia. So there was a very early attempt at multiculturalism.
0: Yes, and also he instituted the radical control of the church. And uh, the old believers were those who rebelled against what he did. And the old believers represented the real strength of uh, Russian orthodoxy They were split into various groups. Their influence uh, has been uh, considerable as an underground uh, movement throughout the uh, Marxist years. And of course, uh, what is his name, the great writer who wrote the Gulag Archipelit. Uh, showed more than a little influence of the uh, old believers. The old believers in the last century, although they were an illegal organization, uh, began to prosper because they had what was like a Puritan work ethic. They created, in fact, they industrialized Russia. They created vast uh, industrial empires and put Russia in a position of competition with the Western world and the U.S. Uh, But they were becoming a problem, not only industrially and financially were they exceedingly powerful, but... Their charitable work, which was enormous, was also remaking Russia. They were buying farmlands and settling the homeless peasants on them. They were creating hospitals, workhouses, doing a great deal. Then, I believe it was Popodhanostev who was responsible for outlawing them. And the result was a great bitterness on the part of the old believers. And in anger, they poured money into the socialist movement because the socialists were against the regime, well, more power to them. But of course, they received no gratitude from the Marxists when they took over.
2: Did they make, going back to the my earlier observation, uh, is there any commentary in there on how or why the diverse cultural areas in Central and Eastern Russia allowed themselves to be drawn into essentially a European sphere? It
0: was because from uh, years before Peter, certainly... Ivan the Terrible's regime. All resistance was systematically destroyed. And the last area of resistance was the church. And Peter broke that. He had uh, great military power and strength and a position of tremendous prestige because he had uh, broken the back of the Swedish power in Russia and also pushed back the Turkish power. So in a sense, he was a great hero because of that. His son Alexis, whom Peter really had killed, as uh, Maryschkovsky depicts, would have gone back to the old order would have probably reestablished the old believers, broken the control of the church. And Peter had his wife, in effect, divorced. And the Russian method was, if you compelled your wife to become a nun, that ended the marriage, which is what he did with his wife, uh, Tsarina. And then he destroyed his son, Alexis. But the trilogy, when I was in school, was very well known. Of course, modern library books are published in great numbers. Curiously, you never see them in uh, used bookstores. So apparently, those who bought them have
1: held on to them. Now, were they published in the 30s, or both written and published in the
0: 30s? Um, no, they were written much before, and they were. Uh, translated into English in the 20s I believe so around 1930 so he wrote during the pre-revolutionary yes he continued to write some in Paris but he was an old man then and didn't do too much 1931 the first modern library edition so we've seen his writing the mode of old
1: Russian thinking I know the radicals were greatly influenced by Western enlightenment in France many of them went there to study Yes. do we see in his writings a real contrast to
0: that the old Russian he's very much Russian very much uh, somewhat uh, imbued with a mystical tradition of Russian orthodoxy uh, very great uh, love of holy Russia well, to move on to another Russian book, by way of contrast, because you had the Christian emphasis that I spoke of in some of these writers. But you had also a radical humanistic emphasis, one that stressed, uh, among other things, the sexual revolution, a la the Marquis de Sade, And one such book that in its day was very important and was important in this country and I believe quite widely published including a very popular and cheap edition uh, let me see, by the World Publishing Company in 1932 was Michael Artzibashev, A-R-T-Z-I-B-A-S-A-T-V, Sanin, S-A-N-I-N-E. And the book, while very circumspectly written, nonetheless has two things. One is a defiance of authority. Authority is really bad, according to Artzibashev. And the second is any restrictions on human sexuality are also bad. So that he uh, has a famous scene here where his radical hero laughs at his sister because uh, the idea of incest strikes her as horrible and wicked. Now, Archibashev had A significant influence in the Western world after the Russian Revolution. His books were translated, widely reprinted, and in the years between the wars influenced many intellectuals so that the seeds of the Russian, of the sexual revolution were in part laid down by Atzi Bashev and others like him. So, uh, the depression, to an extent, stopped a lot of this and it became mer- merely an intellectual current rather than what it had started out to be in the 20s, a practicing faith. But, It only went underground to revive in the 60s. He wrote in the 20s for us? No, this was written... My vague recollection is 1905, Mm -hmm. about the time of the failed revolution.
1: But I'm not sure of that. What was the attitude of the uh, new Russian regime in uh, 1917 toward works like that? Did they seek
0: to suppress them, or...? I used to know uh, their attitude but I don't remember now because I recall in the 30s studying the Soviet attitude on some of these writers, all of the great writers and not so great, and the lectures were delivered by uh, a Russian Marxist. Now I'd like to discuss a very different sort of book, I don't know the date uh, when it was first written. The uh, edition I have was published for a popular book club in 1939, and it is R-O-G, Urch, U-R-C-H correspondent of the Times for Russia, and the Baltic States since 1922. The title is The Rabbit King of Russia. If you can find this in a used bookstore, by all means buy it and read it. Uh, Mr. Urch also wrote two other books which I've never been able to locate. The first has a title in quotes, we generally shoot Englishmen. (laughs) I don't know what it's about and the other Latvia country and people. Well, the Rabbit King of Russia is an account, both tragic and very, very hilarious, about the idiocies of the Marxist regime as he saw it when he was there. And he has, for example, an account of something I've discussed uh, before with uh, some of you, I think. The expedition not long after the Marxists gained power to Africa. And the whole idea was to prove that uh, primates could be mated with human beings and produce uh, some ape-man because they were going to demonstrate the validity of evolution as against what creationists were talking about, the fixity of species. So it was known as the uh, monkey expedition And as he quotes somebody, that disgusting expedition off to Africa to create a new race, a race of monkey men indeed. What do we want with such things? Why must we run away from our own child problems to create monster babies or baby monsters in Africa? Or at any rate... uh, and uh, comment, the whole revolting idea is nothing more nor less than to prove that men and animals are one, that religion is wrong, that there is no God. And uh, he says, they were now putting their idea into practice and labeling it with the blessing of the great Academy of Sciences in Leningrad. Merza's idea of millions being spent on the expedition was wrong. The first grant to Professor Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov for his visit to the monkey homes of Africa was not in rubles, but in dollars of the USA and amounted to 10,000, in those days a lot of money. The amounts of subsequent grants were not published, but they can scarcely have run into millions of the new rubles. The task of the Ivanov expedition was simple. It was to go to the Congo and, if possible, induce the French uh, Pasteur station working there under Professor Calmet to assist the Bolshevik scientists to catch a number of female chimpanzee apes. After this, Ivanov and his staff would endeavor to fertilize the apes by artificial apes, by artificial methods and bring back the mothers with their little human apes to gladden the heart of the anti-God society in Soviet Russia and prove that there is no God. The expedition left Moscow for Africa in December 1925 and when Mirza spoke of it to Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, news had come through that Ivanov, and his trusty band were already comfortably settled in the forest among the apes of the Congo. Well, of course, it was a fiasco. They could not make it uh, work, and it became obvious. But were they going to say it failed? No. Next year, 1926, a circumstantial report was current in Moscow that the steamer bearing Ivanov's interesting female ape had been lost with all hands on the Black Sea. Whatever really happened, the results of this expedition remains remained obscure. There's so much uh, like this in this book and uh, the author not only deals with the nightmares but with the idiocy and does it humorously and uh, he goes on to say we have declared war on the denizens of heaven had boomed the voice of Moscow in 1923. The party cannot tolerate interference by God at critical moments had come from there in 1924. So he says they were always issuing proclamations, waging war against God, making idiotic statements that uh, really were so absurd that uh, they would have made the Marxist regime a laughingstock in the world if the world had reproduced what they said. But uh, he describes one thing that happened uh, that was hilarious. Paul Robeson, if you remember him, was a dedicated communist. And so anything by Paul Robeson had to be good, and uh, as a result, they bought and put on uh, Paul Robeson records on Russian radio stations all over the Soviet Union. Well. They were amazing instances of uh, spirituals and uh, songs hailing Jesus and so on, which uh, Robeson, because there was a good market for black Christian music, had recorded. So it was a long time before they tumbled as to what the contents were. And in the meantime, on the collective farms, Russian uh, peasants were picking up these hymns and uh, Negro spirituals uh, and repeating them endlessly, singing them as they worked. One that was very, very popular was Steal Away, Steal Away, Steal Away to Jesus. (laughs) So for a while, all of Russia was echoing with uh, steal away to Jesus. (laughs) There were some red faces in Moscow and they found out what they had done. Well, they were great for solemn language and uh, at another time because peasants Starving, were going into the collective farm area to steal grain or food or whatever it was, they issued a proclamation in which there was the phrase that all these foods were the sacred property of the Soviet Union. Sacred. So when... Uh, someone began to object to that in fact it was Krylenko, Minister of Justice in Moscow they told him why should our property not be sacred so there was a lot to do about uh, the nature of the property then uh, they arrested a priest A village priest of about 60. He had been called in by a group of peasants at the Bezhbojnik collective farm to bless an outhouse which had been put up there. Three pioneer children connected with the farm had reported the matter to the Cheka, which discovered something illegal in the proceedings. Consequently, Father Uspensky was arrested was it unlawful then to bless the building asked Grisha who thought such things were tolerated so long as a priest did not intrude on the farms but came only when summoned or invited how should I know replied the priest I thought it was unlawful for me to be brought to this place but here I am (laughs) oh then we will soon find out they will soon find out their mistake and set you free said the hopeful Grisha Maybe, but they've been thinking about it four weeks already. Grisha was silent, and Father Uspensky added, They've brought my other crimes against me now. Other crimes? Yes, i blessed the crops on that farm for years and christened some of the children. That's good indeed, opined a merry-looking speculator who heard the last remark. So merry looking was he that he seemed out of place among the dingy men of that dingy lockup. Bless the crops of the Bejas uh, uh, Niki, did you? Well, well, well. The committee of the farm asked me along regularly every year. Just as well to be on the safe side, explained the chairman of the committee each year. <laughs> So the peasants of the godless farm are really religious? asked the merry White. Not at all, replied Father Uspensky. They think the Bolsheviks have made another mistake, that there may be a god after all, and they are afraid, afraid of the wrath of God. When they ask us, we go with their procession into the fields and bless them in much of the same way as formerly. Only now we do it by night. Are you afraid to go in during the day? No, the peasants are afraid. So we don't know for sure
1: exactly when the book was first written, is that right? No, Robert? we
0: don't. That was a very, very large book club edition.
1: Certainly it's a fascinating work.
0: Were there other works similar to this at the time that you know of? Yes, there were, but never any that I knew of with a sense of humor that this one had. Uh, Most of them were very grim reading because they represented the disillusionment of people who had gone over there with the belief that paradise had begun and came back in a state of shock. And the left at that time was just in love with (coughs) the Soviet
1: Union. Oh, yes. Intensely so. And closed her eyes to the evidence, intentionally.
0: Thoroughly, thoroughly. If you ever raised uh, a question in class and cited a book, uh, and the only ones I would cite are, were those by leftists who became disillusioned, they would become very angry.
2: That's a pattern that exists to today. They can definitely. Absolutely can't admit reality.
3: Yes. But, but the uh, the stories were there of what was really going on, even though the, the yeah. press and the newspapers particularly were, and our State Department even, was, were, were very favorable to the Soviet Union. And it was still being called a great experiment then, wasn't it?
0: And we had marvelous success stories.
2: Did the Russian writers use satire as a means of shielding themselves from making comment directly on the political system?
0: I don't know what the writers did. I read uh, in the 30s a number of the Marxist uh, novels, and uh, it was a kind of official literature. The same was true of the poets, including one who became very famous, his name escapes me at the moment. He married the American dancer Isadora Duncan and I believe later on committed suicide. But there was only one way to get ahead, to act as though paradise had suddenly dawned. And the American writers at the time who were there, the correspondents, sent back glowing and uh, totally dishonest reports. Maurice Hindus, who was regarded in that time as one of the great correspondents, wrote such flattering books uh, that they were really fiction. He created stories about Lenin and about what was happening that were childish, but the left lapped them up and the book sold heavily. Uh, Walter Durante, the New York Times correspondent, deliberately gave the world what it wanted to hear. He knew he was lying. Didn't bother him in the least. There's still a prize that he won that is hanging up on the walls of the uh, New York Times a prize for reporting. They've never taken it down, although it has been revealed that he was working hand in glove with the Soviet propagandists. Most of the writers, the foreign correspondents, were radically dishonest. But you say the book, Rush, was quite popular in Britain at the time? Yes, and circulated here. Uh, the uh, book club was the right book club, right wing. And uh, there were a number of American uh, subscribers to that book club. And my father was a subscriber to it. The interesting thing is, on my first trip to London... I went to one of the greatest bookstores in the world that had, at that time, sponsored several book clubs, the right book club, the left book club, the Christian book club, and now they acted as though they had been insulted if you asked where their religious department was. Mm. And they once had quite a selection of Christian books how they can support the Atheist Book Club, I guess. <laughs> well, now to go on to another era. This is an important book that in its day uh, infuriated those who read it and disagreed with it. It was by H.J. Haskell, published in 1939 by Albert Knopf, and it went into... Its second printing, which is what I have within a month. The title, The New Deal in Ancient Rome. Now, 1939 was when the New Deal was in power. The subtitle, How Government in the Ancient World Tried to Deal with Modern Problems. And as he points out, the problems then were not unlike those that uh, confronted the United States with the Depression. And we went to the same stupid solutions that helped destroy Rome. And people could not believe that Rome would fall. Let me read this uh, little account. I followed through on this and hunted up at the time this bishop's uh, writing, I believe. At any rate, uh, after the fall of Rome, the Roman lifestyle survived in certain areas, pockets of the old empire. We have descriptions of this life in the letters of a Gallo-Roman country gentleman who later became a bishop. Sidonius had a villa in the lovely hill country of southern France near Clermont. He describes it with its library, its dining room equipped with an open fireplace, its baths, its hunting and dinner parties. But already the barbarians had broken through and Sidonius was uneasy. However, he could not believe his civilization was doomed. Providence, he wrote a friend, I doubt not will grant a happy issue to our prayers, and under new blessings of peace we shall look upon these terrors as mere memories. Providence failed him. Within a few years after his death, the handsome villas had been burned. The cities were shrinking and drying up and the sort of life he knew had vanished from Europe. It took 1,300 years for the world to build back to the level of comfort in which Sidonius lived in his villa in the French hills. He describes uh, what was happening... As far back as uh, Caesar's day, Brutus, who was a man of integrity, was uh, nevertheless lending money at 48% interest per year. And the reason was a good one. The Roman money was collapsing. And what happened with inflation was that it destroyed the middle class, which, as Haskell points out, was the backbone of the empire. A pall settled over the population. People felt they were being swept downward by forces beyond their power to control. In the face of overwhelming evils, they were helpless. Doubt, despairing of the present life they turned to the other-world cults of the Orient. The worship of Isis, writes Dining, was organized in a manner very like that of the Catholic Church. There was a kind of pope with priests, monks, singers, and acolytes. The priests were tonsured and wore white linen vestments. And he goes on to describe how they sought escape from the crisis by all kinds of offbeat cults and faiths. And then to me, one of the interesting things is, 274 A.D., Aurelian, extended the rite of relief with bread substituted for wheat and the addition of free pork, olive oil, and salt and made the right to relief hereditary so that welfare recipients, children, did not have to go down and apply. They were saved the trauma of standing in line. They were hereditary recipients of the so-called right to welfare. And, of course, isn't that the attitude of more and more of the poor, especially second and third generation here, that it is their right. There's five generations now. Five
2: generations
1: now. This book two indicates that man doesn't really change. Liberals have the idea that the man is perfectible. But this is an indication that, uh, while the outside changes, the externals, that man certainly does not change.
0: Yes, Dorothy called attention a while back to an extraordinary example of that. Uh, John Law, with his paper money experiment and uh, wild inflation and things like, what was it, the Mississippi bubble, destroyed France economically and financially so that one outcome was, in a generation or so, the revolution. And yet, within a few years, Britain tried the same thing. The, uh, what was it, the South Sea Bubble? Yes. And they felt they could make it work because they were smarter than the French in their own eyes. (laughs) They didn't learn. And, of course, the consequences were horrifying.
1: Rush, you and I were talking earlier that at the time, in the late 30s, early 40s, there was virtually no principled resistance to Roosevelt and the New Deal. It was just unbelievably
0: popular, was it not? Yes. Uh, We were very poor then. And yet, because we were anti-Roosevelt, there was some bitter new dealers in the area who were sure we had a lot of wealth stashed away somewhere. Uh,
2: some of the people listening in the state may not be aware of what the Mississippi bubble and the South Sea bubble, what what that means.
0: Oh, well, they were speculations in uh, areas of the world, Louisiana, the Mississippi, the South Pacific, uh... selling shares in anticipation of vast production of various kinds. And uh, on paper, they developed uh, plans for huge plantations or industries or uh, growing this or that, huge orchards. And all they had to do was plan and people were already uh, assuming vast production and profits. And they went crazy in a speculative fever, a get-rich-quick mentality.
3: Didn't, uh, didn't the French scheme involve uh, pegging the uh, French money onto this uh, supposed value of the land in Louisiana? Yes, which a had been, things like that. Which had almost limitless acres, so therefore they could inflate the money almost limitlessly.
2: Sounds like whitewater.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well... In the 80s, I heard one candidate
0: for president ridicule the idea of gold as the basis of money and say we can make anything the foundation of money. After all, the land is well, the wheat crops are well, we can uh, make anything we want the basis of money. Now, that's a very popular idea takes work.
1: <laughs> you dealt with many of those things, uh, Rush, did you, in your book, The Roots of Inflation?
3: Yes. I think a bubble is just about any any type of a scheme where you assume you're going to make money because the next person is willing to pay more than you, because you paid more than the previous person, and therefore the next person will be, pay more from you because they want to get it, so they can sell it at a profit.
2: Some sort of pyramid and when, when And the, when the
3: government gets behind it... It creates a, a it's a it's a vicious thing when the government throws its weight behind something like that.
0: Wasn't there a, a thing on tulips? Also, the tulip mania. Yes, that was uh, an incredible one. What happened then was this Dutch merchant was in Armenia, where the tulips grow. They're a wildflower there, as are violets, and one or two other things that have been brought over. But he brought over the tulip and developed the bulb and they became enormously popular
3: and everybody
0: was speculating in them everybody was growing tulips uh, they could hardly wait for the new varieties to come out and it pushed the price up to astronomical figures until suddenly the whole thing collapsed because some people uh, well
3: Lost At the point yeah, of the they or they yeah. lost
0: faith and uh, they started to get out of the market.
3: Anything that's a guaranteed way of making money is, you, I guess, you have to view suspiciously. Mm-hmm. You see the mink ranches and um, the yamas and now it's ostriches and rias. Uh, there's, there's a genuine market for these things, but, but mm-hmm. you don't know, really know what that market is ten years before the market's developed. Because uh, if you look at something like, uh, what is the kiwi, they had to create their market, macadamia nuts. They had to work at creating a market, and it wasn't a speculative bubble. They, they had a product, and they worked at developing and promoting a product, and they created a market for it. And, and if you got into macadamia nuts or kiwis in the 50s or 60s, assuming that there would be a market, you may have been correct and you may have been wrong
2: think what they could have done if they had had mass advertising like we have now. Yeah.
0: Well, you've had a similar thing in recent years, last couple of years, with regard to ostriches. Mm-hmm. And some people have lost badly.
3: Jojoba, Jojoba beans. Yes. Remember those? Jojoba they were going to grow those in the Mojave Desert and they were going to re- mm-hmm. replace the oil in your cars and just about everything else. They had no idea what an acre, how much oil could be produced from an acre of jojoba plants. Mm.
2: Well, it's the same thing with solar power. You know, you'd have to pay half the world with solar panels. Nobody bothers to do the arithmetic if it sounds like a good idea why it's just got to fly.
1: Yeah. Hm.
0: Well, now I'm going to turn to a book that I regard as a great classic You uh, may be able to get it still, but uh, if not, any serious library will have it. This is the writings of Salvian the Presbyter. Salvian was a churchman uh, at the time that Rome fell, and his key work is the governance of God a description of the beginning of the fall of Rome. He wrote about uh, northern France, about Trier, and how the barbarians began their entry into the empire. And the barbarians were not many There were a few tens of thousands in various wandering bands meandering through the empire, killing, robbing, raping, and moving on. And what made it possible was the lack of resistance. Nobody, as Salvian makes clear, felt that Rome was worth dying for. They were weary of it. And he says some people actually fled from their areas to the pagan barbarian forces knowing they'd be robbed, knowing there might be rape, but they figured after that we'll be left alone. We'll join them. And they felt that their life was worse within the Roman Empire, although he doesn't say that in this particular work the Roman tax collector had the power of torture. And he automatically assumed that everybody was a liar and would only tell where their wealth was when they were tortured. Well, when they attacked the city, he says the Roman games were underway in the arena and nobody wanted to take time to defend the city. And so the cheers of the people, cheering the... Uh, chariot races or gladiators or whatever the case may have been, uh, were mingled with the cries of the raped, the dying, all over the area. And when it was over, they petitioned the emperor to rebuild the arena to improve the morale of the people. And... He calls attention to the moral decline. He repeatedly cites uh, the the hostility of Rome, even though it was now nominally Christian, uh, to conversion because if you were a nobleman and you converted, you lost your rank. All the adversity they faced did not bring about repentance. And he said of the Roman world, it is dying but continues to laugh. And he also said, and I'm quoting verbatim, the life of all is almost a brothel. So it is a grim account He's a better writer than Augustine was. Augustine was a greater thinker. But if you want a very telling and uh, well-written account, this is it, more than Augustine, who sometimes is very, very wordy. He makes clear his belief that if Rome were not judged, then he would doubt that there is a God. And he says, and I'm quoting, his government is his judgment. So he was very, very vocal. He indicted the church for its failure. It had gotten rich and comfortable and no longer was faithful. And he felt the adversity uh, would uh, reawaken the church and he said we offend God all the more under the name of religion because having been placed in religion we continue to sin we all pursue sin with unanim- unanimity as if we were transgressing according to an extremely well-planned conspiracy Antinomianism had set in, and they were doing as they pleased and calling themselves Christians. So, I do urge people uh, to try to locate Salvian and read it.
2: He's really is a warning us today of uh, where we're going.
0: Yes, I had an eerie feeling all the way through reading this book, which I read in 1964. I realized the parallel was a very real one.
1: what is your general observation and comments on
0: Gibbons' *The rise and fall of the Roman Empire? Uh, Gibbons was... Uh, rationalist to the core he was an unbeliever although briefly he was a Catholic but it was more the appeal of the liturgy and the order rather than a real thinking on the subject he was totally ignorant about philosophy and theology so he is trivial when it comes to the uh, theological and philosophical issues that faced Rome in its latter days. He idealizes the early empire. The remarkable think, uh, thing about Gibbon's book is that uh, he mastered all the uh, imperial reigns and the battles and this and that but history is not written that way anymore a great deal more emphasis has in recent years been given to the economic side of events rather than the political so it's uh, a weak book in that respect but a classic in terms of the prodigious scholarship that went into it. Prodigious but limited. Well, our time is nearly over. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.